History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 348th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going to be doing a few locations that are in Cape Cod. Awesome. We're going to start off with the Orleans Waterfront Inn, and there wasn't a ton of information about that, so I'm like, I wonder if there's some other haunted stuff nearby. And the town of Brewster is about 10 minutes away, and I found a couple of locations there that are haunted. So we're going to be sharing those on this episode. Sounds good to me. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the spectacular crew, Eric, Memories Homemade Crochet, Lee, who spells her name L-E-I-G-H, Jessica, Meggie, Carmen, Scott, Sarah with an H, Stephanie, Joe, Daniel, and with an E, Marie-Pierre, and that's French, and I'm sure I butchered it, sorry. And Kate, who spells her name C-A-I-T. And Lee maybe Lay. That's possible, too. <laughs> My aunt has that spelling, and that's how you pronounce it. So let us know if we mispronounced your name, please. Welcome to the crew, everybody. And now, this moment, Naughty. The moment in oddity was suggested by Chelsea Flowers. Cliff Young was an unlikely competitor. He was an Australian farmer who was 61 years old and he showed up to the start line of the annual Sydney to Melbourne endurance race wearing overalls and work boots in 1983. The young professional athletes getting ready to run this race probably figured that Cliff was there to watch. And that makes sense considering that this race is 544 miles long and considered one of the world's most grueling races. Most athletes took five days to complete the race. Everyone was shocked when Cliff picked up his race number. His fellow competitors mocked him and said he would never finish the race. Cliff replied, Yes, I can. See, I grew up on a farm where we couldn't afford horses or tractors, and the whole time I was growing up, whenever the storms would roll in, I'd have to go out and round up the sheep. We had 2,000 sheep on 2,000 acres. Sometimes I would have to run those sheep for over two or three days. It took a long time, but I'd always catch them. I believe I can run this race. Cliff started the race behind everybody, and rather than run, he shuffled. Most runners would run for 18 hours and then sleep for six, but Cliff kept right on shuffling. As the race continued, Cliff gained ground and started passing the racers. He eventually passed them all, and he was the first runner to cross the finish line, and he set a record. He was awarded $10,000, but he didn't care about the money and gave it away to several other runners. Cliff's racing style came to be known as the Young Shuffle, and many ultramarathon runners use it, with three of them winning using that style. And all runners forego sleeping because they know they won't win if they do. A 61-year-old farmer winning a marathon is amazing, but one winning an endurance race while shuffling in work boots certainly is odd. 
This history podcast is haunted. And now, this month in history. In the month of August, on the 1st in 1961, Six Flags Over Texas opens. The Six Flags Park in Texas would be the first park in the Six Flags chain. The park was located in Arlington, Texas on 212 acres and took one year and $10 million to build. Six Flags Over Texas would pioneer many rides and concepts that are now the standard for amusement parks. Here one would find the first mine train ride, log flume, 360-degree looping roller coaster, parachute drop, and river rapid ride. An all-inclusive admission price ticket, rather than the standard individual ride tickets, was introduced by Six Flags 2. Surprisingly, the man who built the park was an oilman and real estate developer who'd thrown the park up on some vacant land as a temporary way to make a quick buck. The success of the park changed his mind about this being a temporary place. And the name Six Flags has a historical meaning behind it. Six different flags have flown over the state of Texas. France, Spain, Mexico, the Confederacy, Texas, and the United States. The Orleans Waterfront Inn lies between Town Cove and Route 28 in Orleans, Massachusetts. This has been the home of a sea captain whose family had strong ties to Orleans and whose ancestors were pilgrims. The original building had been here for over 100 years and was said to be a favorite haunt of the Irish Mafia, where they ran whiskey. This was reputedly a brothel for a time as well, where a lady of the evening lost her life. The inn was a scene of two suicides. Perhaps because of this history, the inn is reputedly haunted. Not far from Orleans is the town of Brewster. There are several haunted locations in this town, from the Crosby Mansion, to the Bramble Inn and Restaurant, to the Captain Freeman Perry House. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Orleans Waterfront Inn and the town of Brewster. Constance Hopkins was the first pilgrim to spot Cape Cod from the Mayflower, or so we've been told. She was 14 at the time. In 1627, she would marry Nicholas Snow, and they would have between 9 to 12 children. Officially, there are only nine documented children, Kelly, so that's, I don't know, was it nine, was <laughs> it 12? A lot regardless. Yeah, a lot of kids. Oh my. Her descendants would be integral in the formation of Orleans. Some of the pilgrims who founded Plymouth Colony were not happy with the size of their land tracts nor the soil. Apparently, it wasn't real great for gardening. So in 1693, they decided to leave and found a separate settlement. At the time, this was just a southern parish of Eastham. Later, it was named Orleans in honor of Louis-Philippe II, who was the Duke of Orleans, and the town would be officially incorporated in 1797. Constance's descendant, Isaac Snow, was part of that effort to incorporate. The town chose a French name to honor the French for their support during the Revolutionary War. Today, Orleans is known as the Jewel of the Lower Cape. There are 46 miles of saltwater shoreline and 12 miles of freshwater shoreline, depending on which side of the village one is located. So you get the best of both worlds here. It sounds lovely. It looks beautiful from what I've seen. And I've been on Cape Cod and 
obviously. So I know Cape Cod is beautiful pretty much wherever you're at, as long as it's not winter. I haven't been there (laughs) in the winter, so I don't know. But I know during the summer, it's very nice. Yeah, that's always a standard comment from you. (laughs) Exactly. Anything north during the winter. The Cape supported several industries from whaling to fishing to agriculture to salt works. Aaron Snow Jr. was another descendant of Constance, and he would build a wharf near Town Cove. He used timber from a vessel that was shipwrecked on the dangerous Nosset Shoals. His business was running a schooner called the Nettie M. Rogers, and Aaron would sail up and down the New England coast, transporting fuel, oil, and grain. Near this wharf, he built a home for himself, his wife, and their seven children in 1875. This was Victorian in style with mansard roofs and was quite large because it also housed a store that the Snow family ran. The main part of the house was six stories with that sixth level being a cupola. That is freaking huge. (laughs) It is a really big if you see some of the older pictures of it because it just started off as a standard. If you look at the hotel today, Mm -hmm. it's got these two wings coming off of it, which were not there originally. But even the main house was really, really big. I mean, that's really large regardless of how many kids you have. (laughs) Exactly. Many residents of the town referred to the store and house as Aaron's Folly. I'm not exactly sure why. Nobody described why they said that. I don't know if he had a hard time making money with it. They just called it his folly. Interesting. The sea captain died on May 10th, 1892. One of Aaron's sons was named William H. And when he inherited the business, he decided to move it to the center of Orleans. And it still runs there today under the Snow family. I found that just amazing. It is. I mean, for that period of time? Long-term business. The house remained empty until it was bought in 1900. Two sisters bought it and reopened it as a boarding house. And that is how it remained for 30 years as it passed through the hands of four owners. In the 1940s, a German man bought the building and the northeast and southwest wings were added and the boarding house became an inn and restaurant known as the Orleans Inn. At first, it was only open in the summer, but it moved to year-round. During the 1950s and 1960s, it was the place to visit on the Cape. It fell into disrepair, but in 1995, Ed and Lori Moss purchased the property and restored it to its former glory. The family rebuilt a large deck and added a large awning over it, and this serves as a gathering area. They run it as the Orleans Waterfront Inn and O'Hagan's Irish Pub, which is inside. There's a neat windmill adjacent to the inn. I love windmills. This one, it's it's a little bit different kind of looking windmill, but it's cool. And they host a ton of weddings at this location. And they have really old cars, like an old Packard. Oh, I love it. And they'll offer the wedding parties to drive them over for photo shoots over at the windmill location. And they'll take them over there in the classic cars. Oh, how fantastic. Yeah, so I thought that was a fun little thing. And unfortunately, that is basically all I know about like what the inside of this place looked like. We really need to be able to take more road trips. (laughs) We do. I I don't know that taking a road trip there would get us any more official history, but it'd be cool for us to be able to walk around inside of it and describe it. Definitely. So that's the official history, but there is a seedy side to this hotel. There are rumors that it ran as a brothel for a time during the Roaring Twenties and that the Irish Mafia controlled the building at some point during Prohibition. So, you know, those two sisters that bought it and it Uh was a boarding house. (laughs) There's a lot of women living at that boarding house. Interesting. And apparently they were making some money. So (laughs) I believe that's why these rumors got started. Gotcha. Hannah was said to be one of the ladies who worked at the brothel and she was murdered in the front entrance of the hotel, although we could find no official report of this crime. Same goes for the stories of the Irish mob being here. 
The Irish mob was founded in the early 19th century and is thought to be the oldest mob in America. For more than 200 years, this group has worked in major cities like Philadelphia, Chicago, New York, and Boston, committing various crimes from racketeering to robbery, assault, gambling, drug and liquor trafficking, murder, loan sharking, and counterfeiting. Their main focus has been in the drug trade, but during Prohibition, they were alcohol runners. Boston had a presence through the Gustin Gang, which was run by Frank Wallace until his death in 1931. We couldn't find anything that indicated that the Irish Mafia ventured into Cape Cod, but it's definitely possible. What is interesting about this time of bootlegging is that from 1931 to 1933, nearly every high-level Irish-American bootlegger was executed gangland style. Can you believe that? I thought that that little tidbit of information was interesting. very interesting. For people who may not know a lot about the Irish Mafia and who were members of that, Whitey Bulger is probably the most famous. This is true. From that. And he was uh, executed, but it was in jail. And I believe it was beat to death when he was in his 80s or whatever. Yeah, I think you're correct. So, Kelly, I couldn't find anything that definitively said that the Irish Mafia was in Cape Cod, that it was at this hotel. But to me, it does seem very probable because this would be a better place to be running your rum or your whiskey or whatever. Because you've got docks here, you've got a wharf here. Sure. It's a smaller area, so you're not going to have the feds hanging around maybe as much. Whereas in Boston, I would think they'd be watching those docks really closely. I would imagine so. Yeah, it would definitely be a little bit more conducive. Yeah, so maybe it happened, maybe it didn't, but it sure makes it a lot more interesting. Owner Ed Moss has not only heard many stories about the haunts at his inn, he has experienced strange things himself. In fact, he had purchased the inn with the plan to demolish it and build something else. But when he and his wife walked through it and felt a blast of cold air, his wife declared that they should save the hotel for the ghosts. Awesome. I love her. She, she is a friend of ours. That's for sure. You can't tear this thing down. There's ghosts here. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Guests have reported disembodied footsteps, doors slamming shut on their own and gusts of cold air, just like Ed and his wife experienced. Ed snapped a weird picture at the Chatham High School 25th reunion party that was held at the inn. There are three couples in the picture, and right in front of them is a white, smoky mist. Ed claims that this more than likely was Hannah manifesting. And we do have that picture up in the show notes. If you go to our website and just hit the blog tab, you will get to it. And I'll probably throw this up on Instagram as well. What do you think, Kelly, looking at that picture? Well, I would say that that's either a spirit trying to manifest or somebody was smoking right there in front of them. That's the hard One thing or the other. to know. I'm <laughs> assuming that there's no smoking at the end, but since we don't know for sure, it, it could be that there was somebody smoking nearby and that just happened to get caught in the picture. But it definitely looks like some kind of weird thing in the front of that picture. Absolutely. It, it's got to be one or the other. I can't imagine it being anything else. Yeah. Ed thinks there are at least three ghosts. He has experienced Hannah himself. He liked to sleep on the couch in case a guest needed something in the middle of the night. He was awakened one evening when a naked woman came down the stairs and started dancing in the center of the room. He politely said, hello, as he wondered what she was doing, and she said hello to him in return. He then fell back to sleep. Um, what? (laughs) I mean, Kelly, we already think it's strange enough when people see a ghost and they roll over and fall back to sleep, but seeing as how he didn't necessarily know that this was a ghost at the time. And she was naked. She's a naked woman <laughs> dancing around in the front area of your hotel. And Speaking you're just back like, to him. hey, and she's like, hey, OK, I think I'll go back to sleep. <laughs> and that certainly is odd. <laughs> Maybe he thought he was having a heck of a dream. I don't know. <laughs> 
The next day, a man called who had been a passing motorist and he wanted to complain about the lack of curtains in the windows. Gee, I wonder why. (laughs) He said he could see a naked woman dancing in the fifth floor window. There was no guest staying in that room. So apparently she was dancing naked all over that hotel. And clearly Hannah's a bit of an exhibitionist. I would say so. (laughs) And isn't it funny that the guy was complaining, whereas you think most guys would be like, I'm going to get my buddies (laughs) and some binoculars. (laughs) This is true. Okay, well, maybe not all guys. Not all guys, but many. (laughs) Ryan Moss was the owner's son, and he shared his experiences with ghost hunters when they featured the inn on an episode. And I didn't note which episode number that was. In 1996, Ryan was 18 and he came up to do renovations. One of his duties was to lock everything up. He would start up at the cupola and check all the windows and doors on his way down, ending with the front door. The next day, the front door was completely open when he arrived. No one was in the house. This happened repeatedly and this was a door that was triple bolted. Another door on an upper floor that had been locked would be found open as well. So this is something that they would be plagued with the whole time they were renovating. And clearly the spirits wanted to make that point to them. Exactly. They were there. (laughs) Yeah, or stop locking the door. We want it to be open, which is weird to me because if this was an inn, you would think that they would always want to have that front door closed and locked. But Well, I would think that the spirits were just trying to make a point of, hello, acknowledge us, we're here. That could be. You clearly locked this and we're clearly showing you that something's going on. That's true, especially triple bolted. (laughs) Yes. In the dining room, servers would blow out all the candles at the end of the evening, and sometimes when they'd come back in, they'd find the candles relit. Josh Santiago was a server, and he saw a man wearing plaid out of the corner of his eye, and when he turned to look at the man, there was no one there. In the tavern, drinks would move along the rail of the bar top all on their own. This has been experienced over and over, and the glass always slides in the same direction, which makes me wonder if they've gotten a level out. Here's the interesting thing about that, Kelly. So both of these things were tested by ghost hunters. They tested the candles because they, I believe they were gaslit candles. So they were thinking that maybe if they'd been going all night long, they'd still be kind of warm. And so they might relight relight themselves. themselves. So they lit it up at the beginning of their investigation, blew them out towards the end to see if they would relight. Did not relight. None of them did. So they kind of debunked maybe that theory. Then two of the other guys tested every possible thing you could for this bar because one of them had been a bartender at one time and he says yeah you know you get condensation on a right. glass it pools underneath and, and i mean then it'll I, move i think we've I've all seen, seen yeah classes move especially if you don't have a level bar i don't know that the bar is not level but they tested everything they had in there from wine glasses to tumblers to taller drinking glasses highballs Yes, got them all, you know, wet and wet the, they even added extra water on top of the bar that you wouldn't probably get from condensation and waited, kind of pushed on the bar, jumped, Mm. tried everything. Nothing was moving. Interesting. So it does. I wonder if it could be temperature related though too. They couldn't really change the temperature of the room, but. Possibly. I mean, you know, that's what you and I are going to lean to first. That's why I've always liked ghost hunters because they would. Test it all. Go with that first and then debunk it. So. Maybe, maybe not. Interesting. Something paranormal going on there. But they did at least try to test it and they weren't getting scientific results. Let me put it that way. In the 1970s, a kitchen worker named Paul had worked here and he loved his job. He had lived down in the basement and when he didn't come up for work, a co-worker went down and found him, unfortunately, hanging. Now, kitchen workers claim to see a well-dressed man wearing an apron coming up from or retreating to the basement. And nobody will go into the basement at night, especially alone. 
Another thing that they tested because the EMFs were really going off heavily in this area and especially every time like the HVAC system would click on. So they're wondering if maybe that's what's causing people to feel kind of uncomfortable down there. Mm -hmm. But there also was a man who killed himself down there. So room five is reputedly haunted. A former guest had checked in claiming that she only wanted a room for the weekend, but she ended up staying for three months and wouldn't let anybody come into the room. During that time, she slowly unraveled into a breakdown. Another woman checked into this room on another weekend, and she seemed to be driven crazy in that room, too. Other guests claimed to hear weird noises coming out of the room like a pack of wolves. I've never heard anything like that before. So this was the woman making a noise that sounded like that. Yeah, so when you say it sounded like a pack of wolves in the room, they could tell that it was the woman making that kind of a wolf noise. Bizarre. Ryan Haas has said it scared him to death. They had to get the cops to take the first woman out, and the family of the second woman had to come get her out. Room four is another haunted room. Ryan's sister once saw a figure in the mirror of this room. The cupola was the scene of another suicide. Fred was a bartender, and he climbed up to the cupola and hanged himself inside of it. Unfortunately, Kelly, he was there for five days before he was found. Eesh. So it was a pretty rough scene. Yeah. I imagine somebody started following their nose, and... I don't know if they wondered, where's Fred been? He hasn't shown up for work. Peggy Begg was a former employee, and she was watching the inn by herself one evening, and she decided to tell Fred goodnight. Right after that, she heard an audible male voice call out goodnight back to her. Aww. She started running. Aww. <laughs> so I'm like, maybe you shouldn't call out to the ghost if you don't want him yeah. to comment back. <laughs> I would have been emotional and wanting to interact. Jason and Grant were in room five about four hours into the investigation when they both heard an audible female scream. The sound came from the other side of the closet. They both also heard a male voice mutter something later in the evening. Amy and Chris investigated room four. This is a room that is said to have a ghost cat. The ladies tried to make contact with Hannah, and while they were doing an EVP session, they heard noises coming from the bathroom. Amy figured out that it was the shower curtain. They decided to do the flashlight experiment in that bathroom. The flashlight turned on to indicate that the spirit understood, and then it was turned off on command. The flashlight started turning on to indicate yes. They believed they were talking with Hannah, and she indicated that a customer had murdered her. The ladies then heard footsteps coming from above them, which was the Coppola. Two other investigators were shushed by something unseen in the bar. These same guys heard a bang in the bathroom of room five. So those were basically the experiences of the ghost hunters. Nothing too intense, but it does seem like they got some evidence. Sounds that way. Just a short 10-minute drive down the road is the town of Brewster. Elder William Brewster was the first religious leader of the pilgrims at Plymouth Colony, and this town was named in his honor. Brewster was first settled in 1656 and would be incorporated in 1803. This was a town where rich sea captains chose to live, and they built mansions here. So this really goes hand-in-hand with the Orleans Inn, since he was basically a rich sea captain. Certainly. Several of these still exist and have been turned into beds and breakfasts. And wouldn't you know, some of them are apparently haunted too. So first up, we have the Bramble Inn and Restaurant. And let me just say before we jump into this, for people who own these kinds of locations, when you have a historic property like this, especially as way back as these go, have a page on your website about it. Heck yeah. (laughs) I couldn't believe how many of these places I looked up. And I mean, I had to dig and scratch and like read blog posts that some of them have made to try to figure out the history of the place. I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know. I Underappreciated. Just, kind of. I mean, I'm like, great that you put the amenities in there, but I would want to highlight your history too. It might be a little bit more get people to come to your place. Definitely. 
The Bramble Inn and Restaurant is located at 2019 Main Street and had been voted the best restaurant in Cape Cod. This property consists of two historic buildings, with the main building being built in 1861 and the smaller house being built in 1849. Ruth Manchester's family bought the property in 1985 and they began renovations in 1987. She felt like the renovations kicked up some paranormal activity and thought the place was haunted. She said, I used to get a creepy feeling sometimes when I entered the room. This was a guest room in the 1849 house. She was not alone. Both employees and guests have had similar feelings in the room. A female spirit reportedly bangs on doors and moans through the night. The property was bought by Rob and Andrea DeSimone in 2017, and they renamed it Spinnaker. They gave the restaurant and bed and breakfast a makeover, and Rob runs the kitchen, and Andrea supervises the dining room. We're not sure if any spirits have made their presence known to them. So if anybody has eaten at this place or stayed there, let us know if you've had any experiences. Ruth Manchester, whose family had owned this before, had had several paranormal experiences of her own in a home that she had owned previously. She and her husband also owned, oh gosh, I can't remember the name. I think it's called the Pepper Inn. And that supposedly had some hauntings or something going on too. So this is something that she had a little bit of experience with. So if she was getting kind of a creepy feeling, she was familiar with that. Sure, she was picking up on it. But we certainly didn't have anybody seeing apparitions or anything. It was mostly people would be awakened in the middle of the night with this horrendous banging on their door. And they're like, what's going on? And next we have the Captain Freeman Perry House. We couldn't find much history on this one. Unfortunately, the official website of this inn doesn't have a page on the history like I was talking about. And neither did the Bramble Inn. Here's what we managed to dig up. Captain William Freeman was born in Beverly, Massachusetts in 1820. He married Phoebe Hurd in 1845 and they had two children. Phoebe died in 1885, and the captain remarried in 1886 to a woman named Hannah, and they had a daughter they named Phoebe. So it was kind of cool they named their daughter after his first yeah. wife. He got involved in the clipper trade and amassed a fortune. He commanded several ships and made his home in Brewster. He built his mansion in 1866. Today, the Captain Freeman Inn is owned by Lori and Jason, who purchased it in 2011. And just to show you how little information there was, I have no idea what their last name is. <laughs> I was just wondering about that. <laughs> In August of 2019, they finished up the major renovations they were doing to the inn. This took them seven years. The interior is beautiful and features medallions on the ceilings above beautiful chandeliers. And really interesting about this, especially down here in the south, we know that we paint the porch tops with haint blue. Yeah. Well, she went ahead and painted the ceilings in here with haint blue. So all of their ceilings have that haint blue to them. Interesting. Yeah. Donna Kane, I believe, I'm not for sure, but I think she's the cook here. And she writes a lot of blog posts about different recipes. Uh, that one I printed off is for like those key lime. Oh, yes. The ones I'm going to be making. Something squares. I can't remember what was mixed with it. Like key lime chocolate squares. Coconut, I thought. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> key lime coconut squares. So I printed that that recipe off. So she's written some blog posts. So I believe she's the cook. And it looks like she makes some really delectable stuff. The ghost stories connected to this end feature an apparition dating back to the early 1900s, and it apparently has been seen floating through the hallways and in the guest rooms. Next, we have the Crosby Mansion. The Crosby Mansion is located on a rise of land with great views of Cape Cod Bay. This three-story, 35-room mansion was built by Albert Crosby. He was born in 1823 and raised here. As a matter of fact, his mansion wraps around his family's homestead. I thought that was pretty cool. He not only came back to his former home, but he built his mansion around it so that they're both right there. Definitely keeping it in the family. 
He left for the Merchant Marines as an adult and ended up in Chicago, where he opened up a dry goods business with borrowed money. He made his fortune distilling alcohol, and he also patented the first kerosene oil that was smokeless. Most of his sales for the distilled alcohol came during the Civil War to the government. He moved back to his hometown after making his fortune, bringing his new wife with him, who was a burlesque performer and 23 years younger than him. Scandalous. <laughs> her name was Matilda, and he built the mansion for her. The mansion was built by John Hinckley and Sons in 1888, and no expense was spared. There was a tall 60-foot viewing tower. The interior was extraordinary, with 15 fireplaces that were each diverse, made from imported English tile. The parlor fireplace had intricate woodwork and a beveled mirror tinted green. This was inspired by a mirror Matilda saw at Versailles when the couple were there on their honeymoon. The main foyer fireplace was modeled after one that she saw at Buckingham Palace. Wow. A beautiful library was off the foyer with carved mahogany and the upper portions of the walls were done in Japanese leather paper that was imported from Japan and washed in gold leaf. I can't even imagine how much that must cost. I'm sure it was quite pricey. The master bedroom is on the second floor and features a dressing room with his and her walk-in closets and a marble bathroom with running water and a flush toilet, which was ahead of its time then. A large guest room was on this level, too, that hosted guests like Mark Twain and Prince Albert. There were marble sinks and floors throughout the home, gas lighting and heating, an art gallery, and a two-story billiards room. Very cool. The Crosbys called their home Tawasentha, probably after Longfellow's poem Song of Hiawatha. Matilda loved to entertain here, and the old colony railroad laid a sidetrack to the house to make it easier for people to arrive. Sometimes the parties got to be too much for the older Albert, and he would retreat to his favorite rocking chair or head over to the home where he grew up, the modest 1830s Cape-style home. Albert died in 1906 at the age of 83. Matilda decided to open the gallery to the public one day a week in summer, and the town in return gave her a break on taxes. Matilda died in 1928, and the mansion passed to her grandnieces, and they later sold it. Martha Atwood was an opera singer, and she bought the mansion in 1938. She opened a music school there, and Kirk Douglas even studied there. The school went out of business during World War II. Then the mansion just sat vacant until 1950. The Horgan family bought it and remodeled it so they could open the Gold Coast Restaurant and Inn. The art gallery burned during that time. The mansion became a weight loss camp in 1959 when a group of nutritionists headed up by Dr. John Spargo bought it. They added a dining hall in 1965. Dr. Spargo bought out his partners in 1978 and decided to develop condominiums on the property. The town of Brewster said no to that plan and he later sold it to the state. The mansion fell into disrepair and, of course, was vandalized. A grassroots effort to save the mansion was started by Brewster residents Brian Locke and his mother, Ginny Locke. The Friends of Crosby Mansion was then started, and they began the restoration of Crosby Mansion. Weddings and various functions are hosted here today. There are some who claim that the Crosby Mansion is haunted. When the house was basically abandoned and had no electricity hooked up, people claimed to see lights on inside the mansion. They also claimed to see faces in the windows, even though nobody was inside. And the weirdest claim is that unexplained blood marks have appeared on the front step. Never heard anything about a murder or anything going on here, so I don't know where those would come from and why they don't go away. The Orleans Waterfront Inn is a gorgeous seaside inn with a seedy history. Many people have experienced unexplained happenings here, and the ghost hunters seem to get some evidence. Brewster has some beautiful old homes that seem to have some weird things going on as well. Is the Orleans Waterfront Inn haunted? And are these Brewster locations haunted? That, that 
is for you to decide. Kelly, we got to get ourselves on up to Massachusetts. There's so many things to see. I've seen a lot of it, but I'd love to see it with you and lots of haunted stuff to check out. Absolutely. And Cape Cod, some of these places look like great places to stay. I would love it. We just need to find a little bit more time and finances and take this show on the road. Yeah, and (laughs) have COVID disappear. Well, this is true. Yeah, exactly. Want to encourage you guys to check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com or people do it in a variety of other ways. have a lot of things to share here. First Ginger in the Spooktacular crew said, As I was talking to my gardener today, he asked how my dog was. I replied that our dog passed away a while ago now. He asked when that was, and I said about two years ago. He looked surprised and said, I'm pretty sure I saw her in your yard about six months ago. I saw her run into the garage one day. I said it must have been a Zoe ghost. She was a beagle girl, and he agreed. He said he was surprised to see her because she ran so quickly and easily since he knew she was old. Our Zoe was 16 years old and had a variety of health issues given her age. Crazy, right? Glad to know she's having fun in the yard and healthy. It was the only home she knew we'd gotten her as a pup. Aw, that's so sweet. Yeah, so I love that stuff. And then on Instagram, Aloy sent me a message. July 2019. I was on vacation at Kersong, I think is how you say it. Me and one of my friends shared a hotel room. We had something to drink around 2 a.m. After that, we were going to go to sleep. Around 3.30 a.m., the television automatically came on in our room. The TV remote was on our bed just beside me. Then I thought, by mistake, it was started because the remote was on the bed. Unfortunately, in a sleepy mood, I must have pressed the button. I turned off the TV and put the remote on a desk. I guess so that, you know, he wouldn't turn it on again. Next day in the morning at 9 a.m., my friend was trying to turn on the TV by the remote, but he couldn't. Then he called to the front desk and said, hey, there's no battery in the remote. How can I turn on the TV? Please do something. Oh. I was in the bathroom. I heard this conversation after a few hours we checked out of that hotel. So, yeah, very interesting. It wasn't that you rolled over on that remote and turned on the TV if there's no battery in that remote. Definitely not. And then Cedric sent us a message over on the History Goes Bump page. Greetings. My name is Cedric. I'm a paranormal team lead and investigator and a paranormal tour guide in new, guess what, Kelly? Allens. Now, doesn't that just go with this episode, too? (laughs) So out of Nolens, I just listened to your podcast on Storyville. Was very impressed with it. Very well done and researched. I'm the founder of New Orleans Paranormal Explorers, and we have a weekly show, Fright Night NOLA, where we do a video tour of different areas and stories. So if people want to check that out, I encourage you to do that. The reason I'm contacting you is that they, I guess, did an episode on Storyville and they shared some of the information that they got from the podcast. So I thought that was very cool. And then I said, hey, you know, thanks so much for contacting us. And you and I are definitely looking forward to going to Nolens to go on some tours and stuff there. And he is one of the tour guides for the Haunted History Tour, which is the one I always recommend people who are going there. So I said we'd love to meet up with him. And he goes, oh, that would be epic. And then he was saying that people could look up their virtual paranormal tours on Facebook or just look up Fright Night NOLA. Yeah, so very cool. I'm very much looking forward to going there. And then finally, we heard from Sharon Remichel. Is that how you thought her last name was pronounced? I think so. She was the one who suggested our location for the last episode, Griggs Mansion. Hello, ladies. What a great surprise to see that you added my suggestion to your podcast. I was very impressed with the depth of your research and found out some things I wasn't aware of. Now to talk about my experiences when I worked there in the early 60s. But first, I want to give you an idea of the layout of the building. Not only were art classes taught here, but it also served as the beginning of the St. Paul Art Museum. 
On the first and second floors, all rooms had been emptied of period furnishings and decorations, leaving empty rooms that served as exhibition areas for artwork of all kinds either owned by the museum or on loan. I don't remember a lot about the artwork on display, but on the second floor, there was a room filled with Japanese cultural items, and on the first floor, in the biggest room, was an exhibition of African art. One of the perks of working there was that when not doing admin things, helping others with projects and cleaning up the fourth floor after art classes, I got to wander through these rooms with a sketch pad in hand. As far as I remember, the third floor was off limits and it was where supplies and workshops were located. Besides the art studio on the fourth floor, it had also been the servants' quarters and had several small rooms along a hallway that led to the back stairs. The art center only moved out of the building because St. Paul had built a science museum, art museum complex in the downtown area, making it more accessible to people. The house itself was awesome. Turret towers that made it look like a castle. Inside, there were wooden floors throughout, with the exception of the admin area, which used to be the kitchen, which had tile. Some rooms had the most beautiful carved fireplaces. They were non-functioning, though. Most of the windows had plain glass in them, but a few were stained glass. The main staircase was the focal point of the place, with carved wooden banisters and posts. The wooden wall panels were made of a dark wood and had some carving on them. All in all, even stripped of its Victorian legacy, it was beautiful. My first impressions when I started working there was of heaviness or sadness, not very cheerful. I just assumed that it was because of the darkness of the walls, the high ceilings, the sandstone blocks it was built from, and a lack of sunlight coming in. Kind of like roaming through a deserted building. The only area that didn't have this feeling was the fourth floor art studio, probably because of the huge skylight that kept the art studio bathed in sunlight. And I did post up on our Instagram pictures of it back in earlier times and then what it looks like now with the skylight there. And it is huge. Nice. And this was where a lot of human activity with the classes were being taught. But strangely, this is where most of my experiences happened. So in the place with most of the brightness and everything. I always agree that you don't have to turn off the lights to investigate. It can be during the day, during the evening, what have you. Most of the things I experienced on the fourth floor would happen when I'd be up there alone, cleaning and straightening up things after classes. And boy, were those art students messy. I would occasionally hear footsteps from the hallway connecting to the servant's stairway. Or sometimes they seemed to come in the room from the main door. At times I heard sounds like people talking, but inaudibly. Once I thought I heard furniture being moved in a small meeting room off to one side, only to find nothing had been moved. Occasionally I would feel as if I were being watched with no one there. The most significant experience was towards the end of my three months there. I was asked to do an inventory of the supplies in a small closet off the main room. I was quite warm as I worked, so I got a glass of water, but as I returned to the closet, I looked down the servant's hallway and saw a woman walking towards the back stairway. All I remember is that she was wearing a white blouse and longish black skirt, and I didn't recognize her. I was concerned since I hadn't heard her walk through the studio area. I never asked any of the people working there about the other things that I experienced, but this time I did. I was basically told they hadn't seen her, even though the back stairs ended up near the kitchen area. I do believe that the people who worked there were very much aware of what was going on, but never talked about it. Curiously, there was an unwritten rule that everyone had to be out of the building by sunset. Since all the good stuff seems to have happened in the mansion at night, interesting, don't you think? At first, when I noticed strange things, I put it off to my imagination or the creaks and noises you hear in creepy old houses. But besides hearing footsteps in some of the rooms downstairs, a few times I ran into cold spots where the hair on my arms would stand up. But always I was alone when these things happened. I had no idea of the reputation of this house whatsoever. I didn't even know it was called the Griggs Mansion until I found the book in 1980. Isn't that interesting? Wow. I think I felt that the problem with me was because of my sensitivity to psychic energy and that others didn't run into into the same things, and I just accepted what was happening as normal. At no time did I ever feel frightened or in danger of any sort, and as time went by, I filed these experiences in the back of my mind and I forgot about them. 
until I learned the full story of the mansion when everything came flooding back. Surprise, surprise. One of the experiences that you discussed was that floating baby's head above right. that guy. So here's her theory about that. The mansion sits on a very high hill that goes down to what used to be a residential street. It's now a highway. In front of the mansion, it's nice and flat Summit Avenue, but in the back is where the hill starts. Halfway down this hill is a building built around the 1900s that housed a children's hospital up to the early 80s. Oh. My own son was a patient there when he was born in 1976. Later, it was turned into an apartment building where one of my aunts lived, one floor down from what had been the pediatric ICU. Between the mansion backyard and children's back wall is a service road that I frequently used as a shortcut. And across the street in front of the children's hospital is a large hospital that used to be known as St. Luke's, built in the 1880s. I worked there for three years and even gave birth to my son there. Imagine all the psychic energy that has been generated by two major hospitals within throwing distance of the mansion. Combine that with all of the quartz impregnated sandstone the mansion was built from. Isn't it possible that the mansion was acting as a collector of sorts, with some spirits being drawn to it over the years? Something to think about. I could definitely imagine so. And in case you guys hadn't noticed, we do have pinned up at the top of the Spooktacular crew, and I also have it pinned over on the History Ghost Bump page on Facebook. We now have the Flash Fiction Contest going on. The deadline is midnight Eastern Time on September 6th, 2020. Word limit is 1,000. If you go over a tad, that is fine. Try to keep it to that. We've had people ask about what if it isn't 1,000. There is no minimum, so you can write a shorter amount of words if you choose. Subject is to be creepy or scary, but please keep it within a lower R rating, so no gratuitous sex or language or gore. Something you wouldn't mind your teenagers reading, because we will be reading this on the air, and we try to keep it clean. Of course, the prizes every year remain the same. Everybody will get a medal. Third place gets their choice of a t-shirt, and their story will be read on the anniversary show. Second place, you get a choice of a long sleeve t-shirt and your story will be read on the air. And first place gets their choice of a hoodie sweatshirt and their story read on the air. And then we usually always have a couple of runner-ups that we share as well. So good luck and send your entries to historyghostbump at gmail.com. And please put in the subject line, Flash Fiction Contest 2020. Can't wait to read them. want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We'd like to thank Mark Patterson for his one-time donation. And welcome into the cemetery, Grace Ellen Callahan. You're going to be buried under an obelisk headstone. And Catherine Fay, you're going to be buried in a garden tomb. Thank you so much for supporting the show, you guys. It really helps us out. Be sociable, drop the chain rattling, neck biting and shape shifting and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us.
tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly and Riley and Mia. (laughs) (laughs) Not now that I locked Riley out of the closet. Okay, so it's just the three of us. then. Yes. Near this wharf, he built a home for himself, his wife, and his seven... Does that help you to speak better? If you, I don't even know. That's not like a growl. It's not sure what it is. Sometimes. <clears throat> did eating the chips ever help you? I think it did, but we don't have those kind of chips. I know, because somebody needs to be buying them. Somebody needs to stop eating them. <laughs> And save them for me for okay. recording. They'll get stale after a couple of weeks. I don't mind if they're stale. <laughs> Pringles are not going to last several weeks in this house with me. Oh my god! Okay, I'll buy a little short stack and then hide them so that I could just eat a couple <laughs> before recording. Kelly has to buy a short stack of chips so that I don't eat them. Well, it helps lubricate my throat so I don't get the rattle. I know. I, but you don't leave them long enough for me. <laughs> Pringles, you can't eat just one or whatever they say. Once like you I pop, said, you can't pop. stop. What is their yes. thing that they I, say? I think it's that. Once you once you pop, you can't Yeah, stop. I think I Lay's know. is once you have one, you, you can't stop or something. Something. Or, I don't know. Can't, or I'll, Lay's I'll, is I think you can't eat just one and whatever. Pringles must be <laughs> once you pop, you Diane can't likes stop. chips. <laughs> I do. I'll just buy a short can and, and a short stack and hide them somewhere so i just eat a couple before we record and buy me the the big stack that's fine i'll buy you the big (laughs) just make sure i never know know. when you want that versus the the tostino i'm gonna be going through your sock drawer now going where Where is it where is the little (laughs) stack of pringles oh Oh, where was i i don't even know at this point every high level irish american bootlegger was executed gangling stop Ganglang? Gadang, 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 gadang. What is ganglang style? <laughs> you know what? I'm thinking about that guy that came out with that song about. Oh, gang- gang- Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style. Whoop, 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 whoop. <laughs> oh, but Gangnam Style. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what it sounded like. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> he would start up in the cupola and work. <laughs> he would. <laughs> <laughs> He would start up at the. Now, now you're gonna make. Me he would start up at the cupola. Cupola, 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 cupola. Can I have some cupola? Other glass. Other glass. Other glass. <laughs> exactly. A female spirit reportedly, reportably, reportably. <laughs> okay. And he would retreat to his favorite walk. To his favorite. Walking chair. Waka waka waka. <laughs> Matilda died in. Died. <clears throat> Many people have experienced unexplained happenings here, and the ghost hunters seem to get some as some evidence. Some tips of Sugar, sugar. Sugar, sugar. Ah, honey, honey. 